If you're new with us or perhaps you haven't been with us for a while, you should know that we are nearing the end of a series on Genesis 1 through 3. This morning we are in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. I will more sermon after this next week in Genesis 3, and then we'll be done with these first three chapters of Genesis. Hopefully it's been a blessing to you. I know it has been to me uh, to walk through these first three chapters of Genesis, and I know their passage this morning, again, is both encouraging and challenging. So let me pray, and then we'll get to it here. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to study what you have to say to us. God, we pray that we would have ears to hear this morning. We know that every Sunday when we walk through these doors, there's all kinds of things that we bring with us in terms of distractions or anxieties or fears. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to set those aside here and that we would bring them to you and that you would just minister to us in the midst of our distractions and fears and anxieties. God, we pray that you'd speak loudly and clearly to us through your word this morning. Would you be gracious to us? Would you speak to us knowing that our hearts are easily prone to wander. And Lord, would you help us to make sure that we have ears to hear what your word would say. God, this morning we pray that we would be encouraged and challenged and convicted by what your word teaches. We pray that you would speak loudly and clearly and that your spirit would be at work. Lord, please be merciful to us sinners. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, every once in a while my wife Tanya will call me on the phone And she'll start the conversation by saying something like this. She'll say, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? And the moment she asks that question, the age-old conundrum kicks in. Do you want to hear the good news first so you can at least have a silver lining as you hear the bad news? Or do you want the bad news first so that even as you hear the bad news, you still know there's something good waiting? I am firmly in the second camp. I want the bad news first so that I can hear the bad news while still holding on to the glimmer of hope that perhaps in the end, the good news will outweigh the bad news. But I'll also admit, I'm a guy who tends to eat all the items at my dinner plate one at a time, starting with my least favorite food and working towards my favorite. So maybe it's not surprising then that I would be a bad news, then good news person. Now, I have no idea what my dining preferences or my news preferences mean about me. Does it make me an optimist or a pessimist? I don't know. Is my view the normal one or am I the weird one here? Not sure. Are bad news, good news people like me more likely to be happy than good news, bad news people? Again, I have no idea. All I know is that if given the choice, I would rather hear the bad news first and hold on to the good news until the end. But whether you agree with my position, which is clearly the right one, by the way, or you go the opposite direction, doesn't really matter in the end. There are some things in life worth fighting about, but deciding whether it's best to receive good news first than bad news or bad news first than good news is not one of them. Now, having said all that, I should let you know this morning, I'm going to take a page out of my wife's book and inform you from the beginning this morning that I have some good news from our passage today for you, but I also have some bad news. But unlike my wife, I'm not going to give you the option of which to hear first, because given the way our passage today unfolds, I think it's necessary that we talk first about the bad news before we get to the good news, because in the passage today, the bad news is pretty obvious. And it's overwhelmingly present, while the good news is much more subtle and in the background. Furthermore, I would argue, and this is probably more important, I would argue that you can't fully understand the good news of this passage until you first understand the depths of the bad news. So for those of you who are good news first, then bad news people, I apologize this morning. We're not going to go in that order because the passage doesn't lend itself that way. On the other hand, for those who are bad news people first, then good news, this passage is going to speak your language. And for those of you who are just indecisive and can never make up your mind, you'll be happy to know you don't have to make the decision today, because I think the passage makes the decision for us. To understand the good news of Genesis 3, 14 to 19, you first have to understand the bad news. 
But once you see that bad news and understand how bad it is, and I'm telling you now, it's really bad, then you can begin to understand how great the good news actually is. So let's get to it, the good news and the bad news, Genesis 3, 14 to 19, if you will. Please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word if you're physically able. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves that this is God's word, and as such, it is due our attention. So Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19, the words will be on the screen here, or you can listen as I read, or you can read along in your own Bible. But the word of God says this, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So as always, it's important that we place our passage today in the context of the verses surrounding it. So let's rewind here a little bit and remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Genesis to this point. In Genesis 1, God creates the universe and all that's in it. And at the end of Genesis 1, we're told his creation was very good. In Genesis 2, the author of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes a step back and focuses more intently on God's creation of humans and on God's relationship with the first humans, Adam and Eve. And in that, we're meant to see that humans, too, are part of God's very good creation, the crowning jewel even of his creative work. But then in Genesis 3, the passages we've studied the last two weeks, everything goes haywire. Adam and Eve disobey God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in their rebellion, sin enters the world. This is an event known as the fall, and the fall messes up everything. Last week we talked about the immediate aftermath of the fall, and that Adam's and Eve's sin immediately separated them relationally from God. Instead of peace and safety and security, which they would have enjoyed pre-fall, Adam and Eve begin to experience fear and shame and uncertainty in their relationship with God as a result of their sin. As we said last week, the immediate aftermath of the fall was indeed devastating, but as we also said last week, the long-term fallout of sin entering the world is even more devastating. And it's the long-term fallout of the fall that is the focus of our passage today. In Genesis 3, 14 to 19, God pronounces his righteous judgment over the serpent and over Eve and over Adam for each of their respective roles in the fall. And in those statements of judgment, it's obvious that the serpent and Adam and Eve paid dearly for their rebellion against God, but it's also obvious that the effects of their sin are still ongoing and lingering even today. When Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and ate of the forbidden fruit, they didn't just plunge their own lives into darkness. They plunged all of creation into darkness. The world has not been the same since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and disobeyed God. In fact, as I said last week, and I'll reiterate again this morning, everything that's wrong in the world today, and there is plenty that is wrong today, but everything that's wrong in the world today can be traced back to this chapter, Genesis 3. When sin enters the world, everything gets messed up, and our passage today helps us to see that clearly. As God pronounces his judgment over the serpent and over Eve and over Adam, 
we see that the fall and its effects are still ongoing. And indeed, that's the bad news. That sin entering the world changed everything and it changed it for the worse. But in the midst of that, there is a glimmer of hope. There's still good news, even in this passage. And it's vital that we see that good news while also being realistic about the bad news. So having said all that, here's the plan for this morning. I want to walk through this passage and first talk about the bad news. Specifically, there are two pieces of bad news that I want to point out. But then I want to finish by pointing out the good news that I think helps to put the bad news in perspective. And I would argue in the end, even overshadows the bad news. So two pieces of bad news and then one piece of really, really good news. And again, given the way our passage unfolds today, I think it's important that we go in that order. So let's start with the bad news. The first piece of bad news is simply this. As a result of the fall, life on this broken planet is going to be difficult. As a result of the fall, life on this broken planet is going to be difficult. When God pronounces his judgment on the serpent and on Adam and Eve, it's clear that his judgment does not just affect the serpent and Adam and Eve. His judgment has ramifications for every person who's lived on the face of the planet since. And one of the ramifications is that as a result of sin entering the world, life on this planet is just plain hard. We see this in a multitude of ways in verses 14 and 19. In verse 15, we see that as a result of the serpent's cunning tactics, there will be constant enmity or warfare between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. We see this in verse 15, the first half. I will put enmity, this is God talking here, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. As we talked about earlier in Genesis 3, the serpent is, just, is not just another snake. In some way, and the New Testament makes this clear, Satan, the devil, is speaking through the serpent. So when God pronounces his judgment over the serpent, he's not simply pronouncing his judgment over snakes. Although we have to be honest, in verse 14, when it says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That does sound like he's pronouncing a judgment over snakes, right? Snakes crawl on their belly, they eat dust, or they're living in the dust. I think what we need to understand in verse 14 is that both of those terms, crawling on your belly and eating of dust, are actually terms of humiliation also. In other words, they're not just things that are potentially describing snakes, but they're also being directed towards the ancient serpent, that is the devil, that he will be humiliated, that he will be on his belly, that he will be eating dust. And so there is a pronouncement perhaps over snakes here or serpents, but there's also pronouncement over Satan. What that means then in verse 15, when we talk about enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, we're not just talking about the ongoing battle between snakes and humans, although perhaps that explains why so many of us hate snakes. But more so, I think what we're talking about here is the ongoing battle between Satan and the people. The devil is actively fighting to keep us from following the one true king. And furthermore, his offspring, in this case I think his offspring, is a reference to those who walk in his ways, those who are not following God. They will also, we're told here in verse 15, be at war with those who are trying to follow God. Practically speaking then, what we're saying is this, if you're trying to follow God and you're trying to follow his ways, there will be opposition. The New Testament confirms this. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. So one of the things that makes life difficult here on this earth is active opposition from the enemy. But it's not just the opposition of the, or excuse me, of the enemy that makes life difficult. There are other realities that make life on this broken planet hard too. 
And we see a couple of those realities in God's address to Eve in verse 16. Verse 16, God says to the woman, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So in verse 16, God informs Eve of two difficulties that will be present in her life and in the life of her offspring as a result of sin entering the world. First, women will experience pain in childbearing, which is self-evident to anyone who's ever been present in a labor and delivery room, and even more self-evident to anyone who's actually given birth. Even with all the advances that we have in medical technology today, there's no way of getting away completely from the truth of Genesis 3.16. There's pain in childbirth. Furthermore, there are also relational complications that exist as a result of the fall. As God tells Eve in the latter half of verse 16, your desire, speaking to Eve, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, there have been all kinds of debates over the years as to what that phrase means. But in light of similar language in Genesis 4 verse 7, it seems best to take take that phrase to mean that Eve will have a desire to rule over her husband in marriage, which is a contradiction of God's design for Adam to take the lead as the husband. On the other side of the coin, though, rather than using his leadership role to serve and bless his wife, Adam's tendency will be to sinfully rule over his wife and serve. Instead of serving, he will do so in a harsh and unkind way. In other words, what we're saying here is one of the results of the fall is that there will be an ongoing struggle for leadership in relationships, and in particular, in the marriage relationship. And certainly this is a pattern that we still see today. Rather than carrying out God's design for marriage, both husband and wife often resort to their own selfish and sinful desires in wanting to manipulate the other person for their own benefit. Now, I will say this, thankfully, that sinful desire can be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can again walk according to God's good design with the husband serving and leading his wife with kindness and compassion, and the wife humbly and intelligently following her husband's leadership, that's possible. But one of the results of the fall is that it will take a restoring work of the Holy Spirit for that to happen, because our sinful tendency will be to try to rule over one another in selfish and sinful ways, to fight for supremacy in a way that contradicts God's good design. And again, what we're saying is this, this relational difficulty is one of the results of the fall and one of the ways in which life on this planet is difficult. But we see another difficulty in God's pronouncement over Adam in verses 17 to 19. So let's read through verse 17 through the first half of verse 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Now as we discussed back in chapter 2, work itself is not a result of the fall. Work is actually part of God's good design for humans. In fact, there was work in the garden even before the fall. But one of the results of the fall is that work is now hard. We deal with thorns and thistles. We deal with difficult people. We deal with aches and pains. We still eat as a result of our work, but we now do so by the sweat of our brow. Nothing comes easy anymore. Our machinery breaks. The weather gets in our way. Weeds and pests and rust destroy. Pre-fall work must have been incredibly enjoyable. As we talked back in Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, work must have been a delight. But post-fall, work has complications and challenges and sometimes outright frustrations. And anyone who's worked on any project or in any job for any amount of time can attest to this reality. Whether you're changing diapers or teaching kids or running a business 
or planting crops or feeding cattle or working in a factory or even pastoring churches. Work sometimes is just difficult. Now, thankfully, because it's part of God's good design, work can also be rewarding too. But because of the fall, there are times where work is just frustrating. But listen, this is not surprising because all of life is more difficult as a result of the fall. And we see this clearly in the totality of verses 14 to 19. When you put together all the elements of verses 14 to 19, you begin to understand the scope of the challenge that we face. As a result of the fall, we face opposition from the devil. We face opposition from the world. There's pain in childbirth. There's difficulty in relationships, especially the marriage relationship. And work is filled with pain and difficulty and hardship. Or to put it all together and maybe say it more simply, as a result of the fall, life on this broken planet is just plain difficult. And listen, the older I get, the more I realize this to be true. When I was young, I think I tended to think, oh, in the future, things will just get better. In fact, when I was younger, I was always thinking, I can't wait to get to the next stage of life. I can't wait until I get a little bit older. In elementary school, I thought, I can't wait until I get to high school, because then I'll play on the field for the mighty Sheraton Chargers. That was the thing I looked forward to then. When I was in high school, I couldn't wait until I got to college, because then I would have more independence and more time to pursue things that I wanted to pursue. When I was in college, I couldn't wait until I got married, because then I would have a true companion and someone to share life with. When I got married, I couldn't wait until we had kids, because then I thought it would be a great joy to hold my son or daughter for the first time. When we had young kids, I couldn't wait for my kids to get older so that I could interact with them more and enjoy the same things that they enjoy. But now that our kids are getting older, more importantly, as I've gotten older, here's what I've realized. While I've enjoyed every stage of life, every stage of life has serious complications and difficulties. We tend to think the grass will be greener in the next stage of life. And we think we can't wait until we get there. But the reason why we think that way is because we tend to view the next stage of life absent the ramifications of the fall. We assume that in the next stage of life, there won't be much difficulty or pain. And that's why the grass always seems greener. But here's the reality we need to understand. The grass is actually kind of brown everywhere. Because wherever you go, in whatever stage of life you're in, the fall and its effects go with you. And also, you go with you. And you bring your own sinful tendencies to that stage of life also. Now, I'm not saying that it's not possible to have great joy and satisfaction in each stage of life. I think it is possible. But what I'm saying is there will always be pain and difficulty. Basements flood. Loved ones get sick. Relationships crumble. Machinery breaks. Mosquitoes bite. Muscles ache. And weeds pop up in the yard. There's no stage of life that allows you to avoid the difficulties of life in this broken world. There's also no place you can go on planet Earth to avoid the effects of the fall either. We went on a family vacation with my parents and sister to Hilton Head Island in South Carolina several years ago. It was a great vacation. We did all kinds of fun things, but it was not without its challenges. One of the days we went to the beach and I got stung by a jellyfish. And I'm talking a serious stinger. Somehow its tentacles or whatever they're called wrapped around my leg. And I had this huge mark on my leg for several weeks afterwards. Later in the week, I woke up one morning and my eye was swollen completely shut. I have no idea why. Maybe it was related to the jellyfish thing, maybe not. But either way, there I was at urgent care taking care of an eye that had swollen shut. Now, given my terrible sunburn experience in Hawaii that I've shared about before on vacation with my parents, perhaps the lesson is here, I should just stop going on vacation with my parents and especially to the beach. 
But the point is, you cannot go anywhere in the world and avoid brokenness altogether. It will find you. So whether we're talking about stages of life here or whether we're talking about geographic locations, the effects of the fall are everywhere. One of the pieces of bad news here in Genesis 3 is that life on this broken planet is just going to be difficult. But unfortunately, that's not the only piece of bad news in this passage. There's a second piece of bad news, and it's just as bad. Maybe worse. As a result of the fall, death is inevitable. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I guess I don't know how old I was when I grasped first the inevitability of death, but there are a few moments of childhood where I can look back and think that's when I started to understand that death is part of this world. I remember one time we found some baby bunnies in our backyard. After a period of time, my parents, I guess, became convinced that the mother had abandoned the babies, and so we took those baby bunnies in, and we put them in a hostess cupcake box with the hope that we would eventually set them free. They'd probably go in the yard, and we could be friends with them. That was our goal. But it turns out we weren't very good at taking care of bunnies. And before long, they started to drop off one by one. The thing I remember most about that experience is coming home one day and smelling that one of them had clearly died. Death had a funny smell to it, and that was something that I wasn't used to. But the other more meaningful memory I have in my childhood of death involved my grandfather. I was almost six years old at the time. I remember waking up on Memorial Day weekend at the sound of my dad weeping as he'd heard of his dad dying. It's one of the few memories I have from that stage of life, but it's a vivid one. Now, I can't say in that moment I fully grasped the inevitability of death, or for that matter, I, don't say, I wouldn't say that I grasped it on the day those, bunny died, those bunnies died either. But both of those things helped me to understand that death is part of life. But I would guess it was not until later in life that I realized how inevitable death is. But as a 42-year-old now, I think I'm starting to get it. Listen, I don't know how old I will actually live to be. Of course, none of us do. But statistically speaking, if we're going by the average for my gender and, and, and the age that we live in, I've likely turned the corner here, and I'm now past the first nine of the golf course, and I'm on the back half. I have less in front of me than I have behind me. Listen, I know we don't like to talk that way, but it's reality. And that's kind of the funny thing about death, isn't it? We all know that death awaits us, it's an inevitable result of the fall. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. We all know this to be true, and yet we seldom talk about it. And even more than that, if someone talks about it, we don't like it. Over the last 10 years, Tony and I made a habit of trying to get away for a weekend or even a week without the kids so that we can invest in our marriage and proactively try to keep the weeds of sin and busyness from crowding out our relationship. And usually most of these trips have been within driving distance, so we end up road tripping by car to our destination, oftentimes Colorado. And one of the things that seems to happen on almost every one of these road trips is that at some point on the trip, Tanya brings up the fact that we could die in a car crash and what that would mean for our kids and their life going forward. It's kind of a running joke in our marriage at this point that Tanya loves a good morbid conversation. And in fact, we can't really start a good vacation without having that conversation first. But here's the thing you should know. My wife never brings up those conversations out of anxiety or fear. That's just not who she is. She knows that we could die, and she figures we should at least talk about it so we would have a plan in place. I, on the other hand, do not love those conversations. And if I'm honest, I try to avoid them at all costs. But listen, I think my wife has the better approach. Death is an inevitable part of, the life, is an inevitable part of life post-fall. 
And acknowledging that is not morbid or weird. It's just reality. I don't know if you've seen the latest statistics, but they're pretty sobering. The mortality rate in the United States is 100%. Not coincidentally, it always has been 100%. And barring the return of Christ, it will remain at the same level. And listen, it's okay for us to acknowledge that. I know we don't like talking about it, but we need to acknowledge this is where we're headed. And by the way, it's okay for us to admit this with our kids too. I think we sometimes feel like we need to shelter our kids from the difficulties of life, and to an extent, I get that. We should let them be kids. There's enough to worry about later in life, but it's okay for us to let our kids know too. There's difficulty in life. Death is part of life also. Now, we can talk about those things in age-appropriate ways, and I would argue we should, but we shouldn't shy away from difficult conversations just because they make us uncomfortable. And let's be honest, that's the issue, isn't it? It makes us uncomfortable, and so we don't like talking about it. But we need to be willing to talk about hard things with our kids. And I would argue we need to be willing to talk about hard things with each other too. It's okay and good and even wise to talk with your spouse and friends on occasion about death. Now, I'm not saying it needs to be the main subject of every conversation. That would be morbid and kind of weird. But it shouldn't be a taboo topic either. If we know our end and, can, we, can, and we can talk openly about that end, we can then begin to live life in light of that end. If someone told you you had two months to live, I'm guessing that you would live differently. But what I'm telling you is all of us have limited time, so let's live differently. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we give ourselves to things that don't really matter, money, kid achievements, worldly success, material possessions, popularity, approval on social media, keeping up with the Joneses, I'm convinced the reason we pursue those things is because we have forgotten our end. One day we will die. And on that day, it will not matter how much money is in your bank account or how many scholarships your kids have won or how many things you've done in business or how many awards you've got or how many followers you had on social media or whether you had your 15 minutes of fame or not. The truth is that on the day of your death, very few things will matter. And those are the things that you should give yourselves to. And when we live in light of our death, we're able to do that. So we need to learn to live in light of the fact that one day we will die. One day we will die. So that's the bad news of the passage. As a result of the fall, life on this broken planet will be difficult and death is inevitable. So have a great week, right? I mean, I'm sure that's the uplifting message you're hoping to hear this morning. Life's going to be difficult and I'm going to die. Awesome. Thank you for that. But listen, don't despair. Don't despair. As I mentioned in the beginning, there's actually good news in this passage too. And in the end, I would argue that the good news overshadows the bad news, which is saying something because the bad news is really bad news. So for the good news to overshadow the bad, that must mean that the good news is spectacular. And indeed, I would argue it is. Because here's the good news. Even though life is difficult as a result of the fall, and even though death is inevitable, we have hope that one day the effects of the fall will be reversed. And I think Genesis 3.15 points us in that direction. So let's read again Genesis 3.15. This is the... pronouncement of judgment over the serpent that God is giving to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, that's the serpent's head, and you, that's the serpent, shall bruise his heel, the offspring of Eve. Now the early church referred to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And the reason they did so is because they saw in Genesis 3.15 a promise that one day, 
God would act on behalf of mankind to finally and ultimately defeat the serpent. And he would do so through the offspring of Eve. The serpent would bruise the heel of that offspring of Eve, but the offspring of Eve would bruise the head, or as some translations say, crush the head of the serpent. Or maybe to say it more plainly here, there would come one from the line of Eve who would defeat Satan once and for all, crush the head of the serpent. And in light of the New Testament, we know who that one is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the offspring of Eve who would undo the terrible effects of the fall by acting as our representative and defeating Satan on our behalf. In the same way that Adam's sin brought death and defeat for all mankind as he was our representative, Christ's victory over Satan on the cross brings life and victory to all who would put their trust in him for salvation. We inherited a sinful nature from Adam, but Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay the punishment for our sin. In doing so, Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. Jesus fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15 by going to the cross. In going to the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. And in raising from the dead, he fully demonstrated his power over death and Satan. And one day, he will come again and he will finally and ultimately vanquish Satan once and for all. And in all of that, we're reminded of this. While God justly punishes sin, he is also merciful. In Genesis 3, God rightly pronounces his judgment over the serpent and over Adam and over Eve. And the effects of that judgment are indeed devastating. Life on this earth is difficult and death is inevitable. But in the midst of that righteous judgment, there is this precious promise of mercy in Genesis 3.15 that an offspring of Eve would crush the serpent and undo the effects of the fall. And make no mistake about it, that offspring is Jesus. And his work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection means that for all of us who are in Christ, one day we will no longer have to deal with the effects of the fall. In Christ, we have the precious promise that one day there will be no more hardships, pain, or suffering. In Christ, we know that one day we will no longer have to face the opposition of Satan or the world because they will be put to their place of torture. In Christ, creation itself will be renewed, and no longer will the ground be cursed. To use the language of Isaiah 55, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. In Christ, death has been defeated, and death has lost its sting. In Christ, everlasting life awaits those who trust in him. In other words, what we're saying is this, all that went wrong in the fall has been and is and will be undone by the offspring of Eve. But the only way to benefit from the work of that offspring is to put your trust in him. Listen, unless you trust in Jesus Christ, there is no hope of better days ahead. Unless you trust in Christ, there is no hope of peace with God. Unless you trust in Christ, there is no hope that death has lost its thing. But in Christ, all of those things are possible if only you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Now to be sure, we will not experience the full benefits of Christ's victory over Satan until the day that Jesus returns. We still have to live in a difficult world, and all of us still have to face the inevitability of death. But when Christ does return, those who are in him will experience the full reversal of the effects of the fall. And when that day comes, it will be glorious. So let me encourage you this morning. If you don't know Jesus, turn to him for salvation. Jesus is your only hope of being set free from the prison of this world and from the prison of your own sin. 
And if you already know him, then rejoice in the exceedingly good news that the offspring of Eve crushed the serpent. So listen, I know there's a lot of bad news here in Genesis 3, 14 to 19. But as a guy who prefers to hear the bad news first, then the good news, what I love about this passage is in the end, the good news does indeed overshadow the bad news. Yes, life on this broken planet will be difficult. And yes, death is inevitable. But if we are in Jesus Christ, we have hope that one day the effects of the fall will be completely and finally reversed. And that hope is found only in Jesus, the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. So let's put our hope in him and know that one day things won't be the way they are now. One day we will be with him in glory, and that's the day we look forward to. Let's pray. Yeah, we thank you for, well, we thank you for the bad news of Genesis 3, but also, more importantly, for the good news. We appreciate that we can read Genesis 3 and we have an explanation as to why everything's so messed up in the world. We realize everything is messed up because sin entered the world. The reason why we experience so much pain and difficulty, the reason why we have to deal with our own death and the death of loved ones is because of sin. Sin entered the world and it messed up everything. But we more importantly know that there is hope that one day things won't be this way. Because Jesus came and he crushed the head of the serpent, there is hope for us that one day, if we put our trust in him, we will enjoy life without the effects of the fall. So Lord, we pray that we would live in light of that good news today. That we would embrace the reality of the bad news, but that we would celebrate the reality of the good news. Help us to leave here worshiping today, knowing that our only hope of being set free is through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would leave here today with a desire to not only worship, but also to spread the good news far and wide. Because everywhere we go, the effects of the fall are seen. But everywhere we go, the good news is still good news. And so help us to be people who want to take that good news to others. Help us to also be people who celebrate that good news ourselves. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. All right, you can stand now for a benediction which today is going to come from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.